Hi everyone, welcome to This is 42 podcast. My name is Desh. This week, I speak to the evolutionary psychologist Diana Fleischman. She has a fascinating mind. We speak about, discuss the difference between evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology, the difference between men and women from a biological point of view, and then the conversation goes towards monogamy and polyamory, which is something she can speak in detail about. I truly hope you enjoy this conversation, and if you do, please subscribe and spread the message. Here's Diana Fleischman. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're so uh, polite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the way to be, right? So I want to ask about uh, evolutionary psychology and evolutionary biology. Cool. What's the difference? Well, evolutionary biologists tend to study non-human animals or even plants. They study the evolutionary basis of adaptations that tend to be physiological, whereas evolutionary psychologists study psychology. So they're looking at aspects of the human mind, things like mental disorders, emotions, aspects of cognition, and evolutionary biologists well, people call me an evolutionary biologist all the time, and I'm flattered because evolutionary biology is a somewhat harder science than evolutionary psychology. But evolutionary biologists often don't want to be associated with evolutionary psychologists because there are some evolutionary psychologists who speculate pretty wildly and without a whole lot of evidence. And evolutionary biologists say, no, you know, some of them say, no, you have to have you know, some kind of molecular evidence of evolution or some kind of gene that you're looking at in order to make the kinds of assumptions or hypotheses that you are. And then we say, nope, sorry, we don't. <laughs> Which is why there is an element of controversy around what you study. Oh, I mean, the, the whole field. Yeah. Can you elaborate on it, on that a bit more? Why yeah. do people hate on evolutionary psychologists? <laughs> so people hate on evolutionary psychology for many reasons, but I'll, I'll kind of hit the major ones. Uh, one of them is because of sex differences. So if you look at men and women, we think that men and women evolved somewhat different psychologies, which gives them different aptitudes. And so we say that men are better suited for seeking status, which they tend to do. Women are better suited for, for example, uh, caring, nurturing, having kids, they're more verbally fluent, that kind of thing, right? And so people say that we are trying to promote the status quo, that we're actually just promoting conservative agenda by pretending to be, do science. And there was a study done in 2007 of, of evolutionary psychologists and showed that they're actually not more conservative than other people. I would say that I'm actually a transhumanist, so I think that we should try to rise very far above our inherent biology. It wouldn't bother me at all if people were using womb transplants or if you know men could carry offspring or anything like that. That would be fine with me. I just think that we have to know where we are at for, in terms of our psychology and our evolution in order to get uh, beyond that. Another reason that evolutionary psychology is controversial is because a lot of stuff comes back to sex. So sex is the way that people get their genes into the next generation. And so there's a lot of stuff about sexual reproduction, sexual proclivities, stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, evolutionary psychologists now 
have been talking a little bit more about possible ethnic differences, but the original people involved in evolutionary psychology, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, said that there was a, a universal human nature, that you shouldn't expect actually racial groups or ethnic groups to differ in their fundamental psychology. And they had a whole bunch of reasons why they thought this wasn't the case. And right now, there's a bit of a schism going on where people are talking about how there might not be a totally universal human nature. You know, I even read a paper that said that there might be different um, numbers of personality traits. So in the West, among weird people, that's Western educated, industrialized, rich democracies. So that's weird. Right. Um, We are said to have five personality characteristics. That's openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Uh, but some people who've been studying hunter-gatherers say, no, they only, you know, some people only have two personality characteristics, or there could be other personality characteristics, and it's possible that this is also, uh, you know, something to do with culture. And getting back to weird people, that's another somewhat controversial thing: is that it's very hard to collect uh, data from hunter-gatherers and from people who don't live in these kind of Western industrialized regions, and is it really possible for us to talk about evolved psychology when we're only studying people who live in an environment very far removed from the environment in which we evolved? So what do you specialize in? So I specialize in a couple of different things. I did my PhD on disgust, and I was really, really interested in disgust for personal reasons. When I was a kid, my mother had obsessive compulsive disorder that was not exactly, you know, de- debilitating, but she definitely spent a lot of time washing things in alcohol, washing me in alcohol. and Washing you <laughs> in alcohol? Yeah, she only would wash me in mineral water my father had bought from the store that she had then boiled and then uh, put alcohol in. My mom was really obsessed with cleanliness and hygiene and stuff, okay. yeah. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the first thing that I did when I finished my PhD was to do a tour of public toilets in India. So my mother was like, oh, I could see all those for good reason. No, so I studied disgust, and I'm really interested in it, and I'm also very disgust insensitive. I was always really puzzled by my mother's disgust sensitivity. I really have always taken after my father psychologically. And so to me, it's fascinating that people are so disgust sensitive, what they're disgusted about. And because it's an area that is gross, it actually hadn't been really exploited fully. Not very many people were studying it when I started graduate school. And because I found it inherently interesting, because I'm really a 12-year-old boy, I I started looking at it and I, I thought it was a place that I could make my name. Another area that I looked at was bisexuality and human sexuality. So I did a study where I was saying, you know, if you look at uh, sexual orientation as a bell curve, then you have to think about um, why would people be bisexual? And one reason that people would be bisexual is because sex isn't just for reproduction. Sex is also a means of affiliating. You see this in a lot of other species as well. In many monkey species, if one male doesn't want the other male to beat him up, he will bend over, basically, because it's better to bend over than to get beat up, on average. I mean, maybe not to our dignified responses, but to monkeys, they don't mind. And also, there's another reason that uh, animals uh, engage in sexual play with the same sex, and that is to uh, affiliate, because sex feels good. You can reinforce uh, another individual for their behavior towards you with sex. And so what I speculate, I hypothesized, is that bisexuality is actually the optimal uh, sexual orientation. I mean, not just because I'm bisexual, but also just generally. <laughs> and because you can get the 
uh, sexual uh, the, the direct benefits of being able to reproduce because you know people who are totally gay uh, they have I mean some they sometimes have kids but they have some difficulty having sex with the opposite sex uh, whereas you also get the benefits of being able to affiliate with people of the same sex so you get both of those benefits and I did a study looking at progesterone in, in men and women and uh, now I'm looking at other stuff as well now I'm looking at how people use reinforcement and punishment with each other. So I'm doing some studies about how we kind of train each other. So the if you know throughout our evolutionary history, if you wanted somebody to help you out, the best way to do that would be to reinforce behaviors that helped you and to punish behaviors that didn't. And you know, how do we do that especially in kind of close personal relationships? Why are why are women often punitive if a man forgets, for example, an anniversary or a birthday? And why are men often punitive if a woman implies that he will get sexual access and then he doesn't? Or if a woman seems to be very interested in a man's resources or money versus other aspects of his personality. So those things are, are what I'm working on right now. Wow. That's all right. There's a lot there we'll unpack. Yeah. So I'm going to start off with the the thing you basically early in your career discussed is something that yeah. you, you're fascinated by which is in itself fascinating because by definition we shouldn't be because yeah. you know you don't want to look at anything disgusting but you went and studied it so um what was your finding like what what's the snapshot of your study cool so right now we're trying to there's a, a replication underway of my phd study so when I was talking about falsification when I did Cafe Classroom, uh, I'm actually possibly going to be falsified, which is better than being canceled, but still not so good. So uh, my research showed that women who are in their luteal phase of their menstrual cycle, not important to know that much about it, but essentially women have higher progesterone during this period and their immune system is somewhat downregulated. And that's a way of protecting the embryo. So an embryo is half the woman's cells, half the man's cells. And the way that your immune system tells if it should kill something is if it has a different immune, I mean, sorry, genetic signature than you do. So a woman's body could kill an embryo and that would be pretty maladaptive. So the idea is that the immune system stands down for 10 days before the woman has confirmed that, you know, her body has confirmed that she's pregnant. And my hypothesis was that women in this interval would show more disgust sensitivity. And so I did a study showing that, that was my PhD study, showing that women are more disgust sensitive when they are uh, have higher progesterone. And then there's been studies back and forth, uh, one study that didn't show that at all, but it used, I used pictures, and this other study used uh, a verbal battery. So how disgusted on a scale of one to seven, Dash, would you be if you stepped in dog poo? I get what you're getting at. No, but you need yeah. to answer answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know. Five. So were you imagining stepping in it barefoot, on a rainy day, on a dry day, okay. in the sunshine, <laughs> with a little dog's poo, with a big dog's poo? So you can see how yeah. like using pictures is a little bit more yeah. objective than, yeah. than using a verbal battery. But we'll see how that happens. And then the other study that I did was looking at sexual arousal. So there's a Freud quote, which is, uh, a man might be happy to kiss a young woman passionately, but he might be disgusted to use her toothbrush. I'm paraphrasing here. I see. And so sexual arousal does diminish our disgust response, and it seems to happen more with men than with women. 
men who are sexually aroused say that they're more interested in sexual things that they would find disgusting in the cold light of day or in, in an unaroused kind of state. And so I did a study looking at women and whether or not disgust dampen their arousal, like whether maybe dampen is the wrong word here. If disgust reduced their arousal <laughs> or if disgust uh, and if sexual arousal actually reduced their disgust sensitivity. So we brought women into a room. We showed them pornography. And then while they were watching pornography, they had a probe in their vaginas, which is called a vaginal photoplethysmograph. Just call it the probe. It's a little bit easier. And that measures um, how engorged the vagina was and what we found out was that women who had looked at disgusting stuff before they looked at pornography they didn't get aroused not a big surprise there but we also found that sexual arousal didn't diminish disgust in women and there's a few other studies you know I did a study with a, a graduate student of mine showing something similar so it does seem like sexual arousal reduces disgust in men much more so and more reliably so than it does in women and women are just more disgust sensitive in the sexual domain generally which is, you know, makes sense given how much costlier sex is for women than for men for a variety of reasons. Um, a general pushback from uh, some politicians, policymakers, and some elements of the public is when certain research is funded from taxpayer money. Yeah. They ask, well, what use is this? So when you mention a study like that, um, what real life application is there yeah from those results yeah so there's a guy in the netherlands and some other people who think that disgust is a really important way of understanding sexual dysfunction or low sexual desire so one thing is that that can really make somebody's life much worse is if they don't feel like having sex or they don't enjoy sex so i would just argue from a public health perspective if you care about people enjoying pleasurable things in their lives then sex is one of those things and that's something that i think taxpayers could could like and another thing that you know if you think about these interventions that they have to prevent people from getting sick or or, or illness or things like um if i was to say do a study about how much more well-being people experience if they're in public parks I don't think that the well-being that people experience in public parks is probably as nice as the well-being people experience if they're having good sex with somebody that they like. And yet one of those is less controversial than the other because sexual pleasure is always more controversial than park pleasure or any or the pleasure of being in nature or even the pleasure from, from eating food, even though food also has its problems in terms of as a source of pleasure. Is disgust a uniquely human quality yeah so there's pretty good evidence that it, it depends on how you define it if you define disgust as avoiding anything that's pathogenic then even c elegans which is like a worm mm. even that organism will avoid toxins in its environment right and but if you think about disgust as a facial expression a shift in emotion then it seems that it's pretty unique to humans and i worked at a a center for chimpanzee research when I was 19, 20 years old. And in that center, the only time I ever saw chimps look disgustedly at anything was at the rain. They don't like to get wet. And they will handle their own feces with very little 
qualms about it. So there's not a lot of evidence that uh, these animals experience disgust. I went to a whole conference about disgust and animal models there's a of disgust. About disgust. There was, yeah, in Bielefeld, where um, Bielefeld is a city in Germany where they do conferences. But there's also a thing called the Bielefeld. Ex- uh, conspiracy, which is the idea that Bielefeld does not exist. I've been there, so it does exist. (laughs) (laughs) But people had all kinds of different models. So there was a lady who was talking about disgust, well, talking about how ants avoid uh, pathogens in their environment. So if a sick ant goes into the colony, they spray it with a certain kind of smell, or it has a certain smell to it, and then they do hygiene and they they get rid of it. And then also how rodents and other animals avoid toxic foods. So other animals do have ways of avoiding uh, pathogens in their environment, and they have hygiene behaviors. They're just not the way that we communicate to each other that something is disgusting. Right. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit about... You mentioned earlier one of the reasons that your field is frowned upon is focusing on the differences between men and women. Yeah. Um, Is there a difference between men and women? (laughs) You're looking at me like, duh, but I'm asking. Yeah, so male and female is defined by gamete size. What is a gamete? I have the big gametes and you have small gametes. I'm sorry to tell you, Dash. Sure. (laughs) I don't know what gamete is. What is a gamete? Gametes are sex cells. So uh, I have ova and ova are the largest cell in in my body. And you have sperm cells and sperm cells are the smallest cells in your body. And uh, an ova is something like, you know, 30 times bigger than a a sperm cell. So that's if you were to find sex in the most basic way, whoever has got the big gametes is the female whoever's got the small gametes is the male. And usually that goes along with a whole different trajectory in terms of uh, life trajectory. You know, which, what, where they put their energy, what they choose to do with their investment or not. And, you know, we just happen to have two sexes. I think there is a fungus that has 30 different sexes, which sounds like Brooklyn, really. So um, if you look at uh, having big gametes, usually that flows on to also investing much more in offspring. If you're investing much more in offspring, then you want to choose carefully, you know, where you get your other the half of the genes that comes from that. And then if you're getting investment from the other partner, that means that there's going to be a whole selection pressure for paying attention to how invested that other partner is in you. And in humans where the amount of investment that goes into making a baby is just hugely different. So there's a term called minimal obligate parental investment, which is what's the very least amount of work that a man versus a woman could do that would make a baby that would become an an adult that could reproduce. And so for a woman, she has obviously nine months of gestation. And in hunter-gatherers, these women breastfeed for three years usually, because that's the best way of spacing apart their babies. And also- How do we know this? Because hunter-gatherer, you know, studying people, anthropologists who study hunter-gatherer women, they often breastfeed for these long periods of time. And also because it, it prevents them from ovulating, so it's like natural birth control. Whereas what's the minimum amount of time and energy a man can spend to create a child that becomes an adult? I mean, maybe 10 minutes if you're being like on the generous side, right? And so that's just like a vast difference. and. There's just so many downstream effects of that. Women assessing men for their ability to invest and also uh, protection against other men. Other men who would like to engage in with women without actually paying the, the, the courtship price or without actually investing. And also men competing with one another because when the 
cost of reproducing is so cheap, you have to compete with other men in order to get the chance to reproduce. So uh, I want to go back to this whole sex difference thing. You looked at, you looked at me weird. Uh, <laughs> what do you say to people that it's a social construct, the, the uh, male and female is a social construct, and uh, you know I've seen uh, news articles where parents have decided not to reveal the gender of their child. Yeah. They can decide it when they grow up. Um, mm. And there is a somewhat of a you know widespread awareness uh, awareness is the word i'm using right now uh, where you know gender is there's, there's fluidity in gender what does that mean from the perspective of an evolutionary psychologist okay so i think that right now what's happening is that there's a very big focus on equality and inequality and there are a variety of fields and domains in which men and women experience different kinds of costs and benefits. Something that people don't talk about very much is that women live on average six to seven years longer than men do, which if I was going to be talking about oppression, I think living nearly a decade longer is pretty cool, but whatever. So you look at this kind of focus on equality and inequality, and when people think, think that you know the, re, the way to actually remedy this inequality is by changing our ideas about what is actually happening. And if you have this environmentalist view that it's actually social construction that's changing how men and women behave, then there actually is a possibility for perfect equality if only we can get the right cultural and social messages out there and, and taken up by people. And so when people decide to raise their kid gender neutral, what they're saying is, I'm willing to pay a very large cost in order to try and get rid of this binary that I think is causing all these terrible uh, effects. Unfortunately, there's just so much evidence now that it doesn't matter that much how you are raised, you're going to exhibit masculine and feminine characteristics. And I'll give you um, what I think are three really good examples of this. Uh, one is that monkeys who don't tend to watch a lot of television or Gillette ads or anything like that, uh, they actually show gendered toy preferences. Males have a very much stronger preference for toy trucks versus plush toys uh, than, than females do. Another really good example of how testosterone influences behavior is in girls who have this disorder called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is essentially their adrenal glands produce more testosterone and they end up having more androgens floating around in the, in the womb. And they tend to have more masculine typical interests. In one study of girls with CAH, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, and their sisters. So these are girls who've had the same environment They've had the same parental environment. The girls with uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, about half of them took a toy car or truck home at the end of the study when they were allowed to choose a toy, whereas 28% of the girls without CAH decided to take a doll. Only 7% of the girls with CAH decided to take a doll home. So there are these huge differences, even though they have the same environmental influences. <clears throat> And finally, there is a kind of perfect natural experiment in the Dominican Republic where there's these boys who are born with what looks exactly like female genitals, and they're called huevadoses, which means eggs at 12. So they look like they have female genitals at birth, and then it's because they're immune to a certain kind of testosterone. And then when they turn 12, they develop testicles and a penis. So it's like a perfect perfect experiment right and these boys there's a study of uh i think 19 of them where they were looking at you know how do they grow up 
I mean, they decide to take. I mean, some of these boys, they're they're named Catherine. They only get their first haircut when they're you know twelve or thirteen years old, and yet they end up developing as normal, almost always heterosexual men who want to take on a male gender identity. If gender was really socially constructed, these guys would at least be super confused, and they would want to be women when they grew up. You know, there's all kinds of arguments that you can make if you're just trying to snipe at the idea that sex roles or gender uh, or being masculine or feminine is mostly innate, you can find holes in these kinds of arguments. But the truth is that the people who are on the environmentalist or nurture side, if they figure out some kind of program where they can raise a boy and a girl such that they don't have any different preferences or any kind of different aptitudes, more power to them. But what they're just trying to do is say that we're wrong, but they actually haven't put in any positive what I mean by positive is they actually haven't said, okay, these are the effects and these are the natural experiments that show that we are right and that the kind of evolutionary perspective is wrong. The last thing I'll say about this is the the because women tend to disproportionately take care of children and be concerned about their well being and their psychology, this whole push to raise children in genderless environments is unfortunately going to put the burden on women to raise their children in these genderless environments. If you don't want to send your kid to daycare and actually, it's children, other children who are the most gendered. They're the most like, are you a boy or a girl? Do you want to play with toy cars or uh, toy dolls? And if you give a child a baby, they'll treat it totally differently depending on whether or not it's they think it's a boy or a girl. So if you don't want your kid to grow up in a gendered environment, you're going to have to spend a lot of time hot housing them in a genderless environment. And, you know, I, I was I was. Uh, um, catching a ride with this guy to uh, such a hippie to a breathwork workshop and he told me that uh, he tried to raise his kids as genderless as possible like they were raising their kids in the 90s and they had this strong opinion that that gender was socially constructed and what happened his daughter designs lingerie and his son designs construction equipment <laughs> it's just like one <laughs> anecdote but people like anecdotes right. better than data anyway right um, I was doing some research for this podcast. What's shit testing? Is that is that shit a, testing? Is that an actual thing? Hey Dash, would you get me a steak, even though I won't eat it? <laughs> That's shit testing. So shit testing is way you know you could also call it testing the bond. So non-human animals do a lot of weird things in order to test how how closely affiliated they are. Uh, so there's one monkey species in which the males, I think it's the males, they'll actually put their fingers in each other's eye sockets. And they'll do that, let's try now. <laughs> they'll, do it, they'll do it because um, it, it's just so vulnerable uh-huh. that if either one of them had a bad motivation, they would, they would kind of, it's just a really good test in terms of vulnerability. Now shit testing is what the kind of red pill on Manosphere calls it when a woman tests a man's investment in her. And there's a variety of ways that women do this. And I don't think any woman is immune to it because even though I know about it, I do it anyway. And it is essentially a testing the bond to test both a man's investment and a man's status. So unfortunately for women's kind of satisfaction, they're not looking for just one thing. So let's say I go back home uh, to my fiance and I say to him, I want you to have fresh guacamole ready for me and fresh flowers ready for me when I get back. And I'm really more into guacamole than flowers, but here we are. 
So it's it, that implies that he's got to remember that he's got to go out and get it. it. It has a very time limited window in which it's good. These are all ways, you know, somebody can tell you they love you all day long, but if they're actually not showing you with behavior that's difficult to accomplish, then it doesn't really work. In a similar way, what are romantic gifts? Like a toaster is not a romantic gift. Getting your oil changed a year for free on the Metro card. I mean, I'd love that, but that's that, those are all not romantic gifts because they're too practical. They actually have a, a, an outcome that is useful. What's considered romantic gifts are actually things that are useless. Diamonds, flowers, perfume it's not totally useless so stuff like that so what you're doing is you're trying to amplify the signal of caring without the noise of you know actual practicality so the shit testing is not all that stuff romantic proof is what i'm talking about in the last iteration but shit testing can be something like uh starting a pointless argument uh or stressing out your partner and then seeing how lovingly they react to you when they are really at their wits end that's a much better indicator of how much somebody likes you than how they behave towards you when everything's going well and you can see what your partner is like and their demeanor towards you in these sort of constructed stressful situations right and what's the evolutionary benefit of She's testing well, your partner. Well, so, I mean, so there's a lot of there's a lot of cheap talk that happens, right? If I am with a with a man and he says I love you, I, you know, I would never leave you. I actually know I get a much more honest information from him about whether or not he would ever leave me if I don't feed him until three hours past his usual dinner time, and then I see how he acts, right? Uh, and I also get more information about his status and what other kinds of options he has by testing that out than I do by any direct information because people don't really have that much direct access to their emotions and to you know, if, if, if somebody's about to leave somebody it happens all the time you hear somebody like oh I didn't know that I was going to break up with her it's just there's so much actually hidden from ourselves so much that's actually self-deceived so what's useful about it is that you actually get honest information and unfortunately there's not really any other way to get that kind of information if you could just ask people and they would be totally honest about their feelings then we could bypass a lot of problems unfortunately though uh in addition to the kind of shit testing people often also punish each other for for honesty if i asked you you know what did you think about that lecture i gave especially if if uh, i asked somebody i was romantically involved with and they said "Mm, i've seen you do better if I act nasty to them afterwards, they're going to be disincentivized from telling me the truth in the future. And so that actually makes it much more likely that I'm going to try to get information in ways that are nonverbal. So the, the few things we've just spoke about, it seems like that there is there are some evolutionary benefits of this craziness, but it seems also pointing towards two people uh, staying together in a relationship. In other words, monogamy. Yeah. Is that how evolution... <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? I do see where you're going with this, Stash. <laughs> <laughs> so, because uh, there is an argument within both evolutionary psychology and biology where is... What is the evolutionary norm? Is it monogamy or polyamory or any other form yeah. of pair bonding? It, there's this thing called called frequency dependent selection. Essentially, it means that there are strategies that are better for some people than for others. And monogamy is the best strategy, certainly 
for many people, and certainly often while a child is very young, when you have an infant, or when a woman is pregnant. So humans have always engaged in pair bonds. And there are some people who say that falling in love and romantic love is a social construction developed in the West, but it does seem like people fall in love all over the world. And when you've fallen in love with somebody, you are focusing most of your time and attention and effort on that person. You can even say romantic love is an adaptation to focus your attention on the person who's the best prospect that you have. The other day I was telling somebody that I thought he uh, thought he couldn't do any better than his girlfriend. I thought that he should try and date other people. And he's like, I'm, I'm, it's not that I don't think I can do any better. It's that I'm in love with her. And I said, being in love is the feeling that you can't do any better. That's what being in love is. <laughs> okay. I'm being a little bit ruthless, but that's, that's what I think. Yes. I think essentially. So in terms of monogamy, uh, it is true that we've always had relationships with other people and that people always uh, have taken sexual opportunities when they can. Uh, it is the case that in some groups more than others, men think that they're the, they're the father of a child uh, when they're not. And in 80% of societies over human history, there has been some degree of polygyny. That is usually only high status men will have more than one wife or more than one female partner. Whereas men who are lower in status tend to um, be engaged monogamously. So if I was to say, are we evolved to be monogamous or not? I would say, Yes, we are actually evolved to do monogamy for periods of time, but monogamy forever is pretty unnatural. And polyamory, I've never argued that polyamory is natural. I've just argued that it's a way to satisfy a variety of your romantic and, and sexual desires while in the context of behaving really ethically with other people. And some people say it's way too complicated. I understand that. But, you know, to a monk, uh, monogamous dating also seems really complicated. So you have to always decide your level of complexity. Celibacy is always going to be the simplest option. So just for context, uh, what is polyamory? Polyamory is a way of romantically dating other people or getting involved with people where you don't just have one person that you're romantically associated with. Usually you have more than one person, or at least you have an agreement where you can be romantically associated with more than one person. And part of polyamory is that you're honest, that you tell people that you are engaging with other people. So everybody's got their own kinds of rules. There are people who do don't ask, don't tell, where they have sex with other people and they don't tell that person. That's, I think, not polyamory. But I think polyamory is anything open and honest that includes having sex with more than one person or the explicit agreement that you can have sex with more than one person. Ed. So you earlier you mentioned the term uh, sounded like polyamory, but it's not. Say, Poly polygyny. polygyny. What's polygyny? A, a quick a quick primer. Gyne, like OBGYN, gyne is female. So right. polygyny is multiple vaginas. That's <laughs> polygyny is, is, is uh, having multiple wives. And there's polyandry, like androgens, and that's having multiple husbands. And there's polygamy, like marriage. Um, monogamy, polygamy, so that's like uh, gammy is is marriage. So polygamy is means like being married to more than one person, whether you're a male or a female. Like bigamy is being married to two people, and uh, polyamory. People think it's perverse because it mixes Latin and Greek. That's what that's what really the problem is. <laughs> no, it's kidding, it's kidding. But polyamory is um, just means more than one love, and 
people really differ in you know the, the way that they conceptualize it again i brought this up with you randomly it's not random because uh, you know the uh, you advocate to a certain degree by talking about it and yeah. also uh, the the concept of polyamory personally i didn't know that this was a thing up until about december last year yeah. and then when i found out i didn't even know there was a technical term for it mm-hmm. uh, a, a friend of mine told me that this is his this is how he's living his life and I, at that point the only term i knew how to describe that was an open relationship yeah um and then I've heard the term swinging and they all seem to be somewhat of a, almost like a derogatory way of describing a certain relationship. It's like, yeah. oh, they're like that. <laughs> right, so what you, when you describe polyamory, you're talking about something quite different. Well, there's also con- like consensual non-monogamy. I don't, I, you know, there are some, so it has to do with kind of political affiliation. Polyamorists, tend to be super hard left right and swingers actually tend to be right right? (laughs) yeah so that's one reason they like have weird feelings about each other but i actually think swinging if you think about the ways people model their relationships as a form of technology which is like how i like to think about it the technology of having sex with somebody new when your partner's having sex with somebody new is in my view actually really brilliant because it's pretty hard to be jealous when you're having sex with somebody new those feelings are actually pretty mutually exclusive. It's hard to feel that way. So that's what swingers have done. And swingers very much prioritize their primary relationship. Polyamorists, there's a whole gambit, but or gamut, but from people who have a hierarchical relationship where they are married or very seriously involved with one person and they might have one or two other partners who are they see very infrequently or very rarely, all the way to people who do something called relationship anarchy, where they're seeing multiple people or a few people, and they say that none of them have any more importance romantically than any other one. This seems, this sounds very complicated, but I get it. You, you mentioned earlier to a monk. Yeah, comment. so That's- yeah, to a monk, to a monk, monogamy seems complicated. Uh, I agree that. So my view and, you know, Jeffrey Miller, who's my evolutionary psychologist fiance, we have developed rules that we think really simplify things a lot. And we have to talk about it. I think he's going to be writing something about it as well. But I think people make things needlessly complicated because they're not really considering, for example, the evolutionary psychology of jealousy we are Which is my next question. jealous yeah so men and women experience jealousy differently if you were trying to make a relationship work in polyamory where the rules were symmetrical it would be pretty difficult and i've seen people make you know try to make rules and for me because i understand what makes jeffrey jealous and the evolutionary origins of that jealousy then i can choose relationships and people to see that are going to reduce his his jealousy i've often seen women say oh well my partner he can sleep with women who are you know over 30 or whatever but he can't have sex with younger women and they'll say for a virtuous reason i don't want him to have sex with younger women because you know it's just it's just creepy or it's it's not right for somebody much older to date somebody much younger when in fact they just don't want him dating somebody much younger because 
younger women are more attractive on average and because they have more reproductive you know they have more fertility basically so i just don't fool myself about any of that stuff we still have like age limits and we still ask each other permission for things i think if i was going to say any one rule that we have that i think really limits our the amount of time we have to sink into negotiating stuff i would say that for me it's that we're conflictogamous which we only argue with each other we don't argue with other people if my partner gets in a relationship where he's having an argument with somebody else that either means that he hasn't communicated clearly enough that the desires of that person and his desires are very mismatched such that you know perhaps she's got a problem with me and that for me is where we kind of draw the line you're you're allowed to have happy like nice relationships with other people i don't want to be helping to mend your heart when you're upset about how some other woman treated you that's that's not in my domain in my view right so i mean as you just pointed out jealousy is a part of the human condition yeah um so what you're saying is this uh, polyamory to work you need to have different set of rules based on well not even always rules but yeah for for me guidelines yeah yeah so uh i'll just say another thing like women are much more likely to flake out on dates like they're they're more ambivalent than men are so if i have a date i'll tell my partner like three weeks ahead of time i'll give him a long time to find somebody else that he can go on a date with and i do that just out of consideration we don't have a, a proper like rule about that um you know in the same way that i said younger women are more jealousy inducing for a woman uh, a man with high status is more jealousy inducing for a man so if i like let's say there's two guys I'm interested in one is like 25 and the other one's like 50 right one's wealthy and the other one's like a, a student or something like that it's going to make my partner much less jealous for me to engage with somebody lower status than somebody higher status because status is the way that men measure each other right I mean, so did yeah. you just give away everyone you're interested in is going to be there. No, no, no. I mean, there's obviously, it, it, there's, obvi- there's, obvi- there's also empathy and like people that we know, um, those kinds of things as well. Uh, and then polyamorous people have this, this notion called compersion, which is this idea that you can feel happy at another person's pleasure. You can feel happy for somebody if they are fall in love with somebody else. I think compersion is socially constructed, which is why you don't hear about it very much. But... I also think that you can cultivate a certain happiness for your partner if you feel really secure. So I've been seeing my partner for four or five years. I've seen lots and lots of other women kind of come and go. And I've seen him, you know, immediately after he goes on a date with somebody else he's really excited about. And it doesn't actually cause him to treat me badly. And if, you know, there was a contrast effect where I was getting treated really badly right after we went on a date, yeah, that would make me crazy jealous and that would make me really irritated. But you know, when you, when you have enough experience with these things, then ultimately you become, I don't know if desensitized is the right word, but again, celibacy is the right choice for some people. That's their, the amount of complexity that they want to deal with. Monogamy works for a lot of other people. We are kind of intermediately polyamorous. We see other people, but not all the time and not when we're... Uh, spending a lot of time together we often don't see other people for for months and then there are people who do polyamory where they're literally dating full-time other than their job dating is all that they do and i'm not going to you know cast aspersions on that because that actually sounds like a lot of fun it's just not not my 
is not my bag. Like I don't, I don't, I have other things I need to do. <laughs> is 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 there a evolutionary explanation for the existence of polyamory? Well, I think that what we're doing is we're kind of putting modern day standards of honesty and ethics on something that people are inclined to do anyway. I mean, there's a reason why when you have sex with somebody the first time, it tends to be hotter than when you have sex with somebody for the 500th time. And if you've ever seen that movie, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, they hook up again after they've had their memories erased and they fall in love all over again. Sorry, spoiler. <laughs> and um, they fall in love all over again and they have this hot sex again. And, you know, if if uh, we didn't have this, like if having sex with a person that you've had sex with hundreds of times before was always the best thing, then that would mean that we were actually perfectly inclined towards monogamy, right? So I think that all, poly all polyamory is trying to do is say, what is the way that we can enjoy all of the things about meeting and being romantically entangled with new people. You learn a lot more. If you're engaging in courtship with somebody, you have this creative burst. You pay attention to them in a deep way that you often don't pay attention to people you're not trying to sleep with. I'm not saying that that's always the case, but that's often the case. And you have this, this novelty. And you also develop like a really lovely network of people. And there's these intermediate kinds of, there's friendships, there's romantic relationships, there's boyfriends, there's people you see once every five years. There's all these kinds of other kinds of relationships that you can uh, cultivate. And I think that the desire for novelty, the desire for variety is very much ingrained in our evolutionary makeup. It's just that we're trying to do it in the most ethical way possible. And in my view, and the way that I'm trying to do it, is I'm trying to do it in the least messy and complicated way possible. Right. I mean, there, there are some evolutionary psychologists and some academics written books about this is the most natural way to be. Um, no. <laughs> but it's <laughs> being, not the case. Being radically honest is not a natural way to be. We are deceptive creatures by design. And you know, just the other day I was thinking, like, what's a good example of self-deception? Georgia O'Keeffe did not think that her paintings look like vaginas. She, till her grave, said, these do not look like vaginas. If there's no better example of self-deception than that. So <laughs> if, she can, if she can paint every day and think this does not look like a vagina, then people are capable of thinking, I'm not in love with this other person. I'm only attracted to my partner. I've only ever been in love with my partner. These are all kinds of possible forms of self-deception that we engage in, often for the service of the greater good. And I know, for example, one really, really wonderful, rational um, genius of a woman who is polyamorous, and she decided to become monogamous because she missed that bittersweet missing, right? If she and her boyfriend were apart from each other, she wanted to really miss him. She didn't want to be enjoying somebody else or have him enjoying somebody else. They wanted to have this this longing and, and bittersweetness and work on stuff together and not do what, what she had done before. So I definitely think, you know, I, I think I could be monogamous again uh, and, you know, if I get pregnant and have children, I might think polyamory was like the weirdest, dumbest thing ever. You know, I might change fundamentally as a person. I don't necessarily think that I'm going to be consistent with my attitudes or emotionally. Rationally, I think I will be. But I might change my emotional feelings about this in the future. And that's, uh, that's totally fine. I'm not wedded to it. Um, have you seen the Louis Thoreau documentary about polyamory? It is the cringiest thing I've ever seen. 
It is so, so sad. I think I want to do something where I, I just do commentary over it. Um, yeah, so the kind of Pacific Northwest polyamorous polycule kind of communities, uh, they just do things really differently than, than I would. And in particular, uh, there was that one couple and it's very hard to achieve sort of equality and parity. In that one case, uh, there was a woman who had a new boyfriend and then her husband had nobody other than her. And it was making him really jealous and sad. But because they had this social norm that jealousy was in some sense wrong and bad, that he wasn't actually perfectly content to express himself and maybe he would have been willing to say look this makes me incredibly jealous and sad but it's fine or maybe it would have been better if she had helped him find a girlfriend so that they could have had some kind of equality but I don't know if those people are you know what I would say are, are representative of polyamory they seem to have uh, quite unusual unusual lives and they seem to be more on the polyamory as a full lifestyle polyamory as full-time other than your job or polyamory as the way that you conceptualize you know whatever anarchy relationship anarchy that no person has is above or below another because because i said polyamorists are so lefty they often almost take like a marxist view of relationships right that there should be no uh, hierarchy that there should be like a really flat structure where where people are, are equal uh, whereas for me I almost think about polyamory as like a like an economy like people who are in exchange with each other right um, I'm mindful of time there's one area we haven't gone into just yet so I'm gonna try to keep this simple there's nothing simple about what we are about to talk about <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> uh, Me Too movement and the modern day feminism movement. Um, do you have any thoughts? None whatsoever. No. Okay. <laughs> what is your take on modern feminism? If you never thought about it, here's your chance. Oh man, I just can't wait to just you know think about it for the first time. I think that modern feminism has some stated aims that are in conflict with its strategies. So in terms of Me Too, what would people say is the, the aim of the, of the Me Too movement? I think the aim of the Me Too movement, I thought maybe was to rehabilitate men and to help men learn more about how they would be harming women in their interactions. Do you think it was rehabilitation? I, I thought it was holding men accountable. Oh, I was going to say holding men accountable. Yeah. Powerful men accountable for yes. cultures that they have cultivated for decades. Yes. So it has had a certain retributive aspect to it. And as far as I can tell, nobody who has been Me Too'd has been able to say, there's, there's no metric by which you can uncancel yourself. There's no way that you can come back. And so if I was going to say to you, Me Too, hypothetically, is actually not a movement to hold men in power accountable. It's a way to cancel white men such that women can take their place. Well, but the Me, Too, Me Too has called out um, men who are not white. That's true. Not very many, but it has. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that 
what what it seems to be happening to me if if I was to say and this is I'm a, I'm, in a, I'm a big fan of actually looking at what's happening versus what the stated objective is if I was just looking at the behavior rather than the stated objective then I would say that you could say me too is actually about replacing men with women in positions of power that's a pretty controversial statement to make. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I'm here for. And also... Why, um, why, why did you say that? What, well, I mean, what evidence do you have there's no, there's no objective standard of who is going to be held accountable. So people have been, quote unquote, held accountable. You know, everybody from somebody who actually sexually assaults people to men who make arrangements with women such that they've they've said that I'm going to give you something in exchange for sexual access which is super common all the way to people well, but that doesn't make it right there, there's a you know power imbalance doesn't make it wrong either well doesn't it because uh, if, if if someone feels as the only way to uh, get somewhere is to do some sexual favors to some creepy old dude um, Why does he have to be creepy and old, Dash? <laughs> okay, point taken. But somebody of power. Yes. Uh, if the only way to you, for you to get where you want to get is through this providing sexual gratification to people of power, regardless of their age, isn't there something inherently ethically wrong with that? I, I think that having that be the only way that you can get something that you want is as they say, problematic. But having it be a way that you can get what you want and you do it voluntarily and consensually and the other person... There's two ways of thinking about sure. women in these interactions. But isn't, isn't in most cases it is especially in the uh, creative arts industries, uh, like Hollywood, like the music industries, because I used to work in the music industry, and anecdotal maybe, but it seemed to be the general way. If you're a female, you want to get somewhere, you have to go through these gatekeepers at various levels of power. And, and have sex with them. only way to get through some of these gatekeepers seemed to be through sexual favors, which seemed to be an awful way to get through. Yeah, I think that if you're trying to optimize for people who have musical talent, optimizing for people who are willing to have sex with the gatekeepers is not ideal, but that's music. I, I mean, I don't know if there's any objective standard for musical quality, but if you looking at women two different ways, what I've seen in terms of the Me Too movement is women who are being considered in this way, like this is the only way that they could get that what you know, get to where they wanted was through sexual favors and really feeling the feeling that they had done something incredibly like degrading or harmful you know like if these women had been asked to i don't know kill a puppy it would have been considered better than to have sex with a kind of kind of an, an older man who is a gatekeeper for them i don't necessarily think that saying that every time a woman has sex with a man in order to you know, increase her or improve her career trajectory. I don't think it makes sense to say that that's always immoral or unethical. I do agree with you that if it's the only way that she can get where she wants to go, that that's a serious problem. And the last thing I was going to say is, hmm, 
Does this get edited? <laughs> it can be. <laughs> oh, I had something else to say. Hold on. Oh, um, yeah. So, so one thing that is ignored a lot in this uh, conversation. Oh, I'll just say there's a This American Life, which talks about a guy who was accused of sexual harassment. And it talks to five different women who worked for him, one of whom was the, you know, very consciously using her attractiveness as a way of getting a job with him. So she had no experience whatsoever. She knew that it was going to be very difficult for her to experience. And then she bypassed a lot of what would have been very arduous work by um, appealing to this guy's sexual interest. She never had sex with him. I think the worst thing that he did was he showed her a picture of his penis. Not cool, but also you know, not Rwanda. <laughs> it's like not, it's just not that big a deal, right? And she at the time was willing to pay Are that. Are you a Christina of Summers fan? <laughs> she was willing to, she was willing to pay that cost. Um, yeah, so the, I, I agree with Christine Huff Summers in that she says that, you know, we have this kind of babe in the woods mentality about women and not considering the ways that they're actually using their wiles and, in a Machiavellian way trying to get what they want so I agree with you but it's, it's just very I think it's very hard to police because somebody can say after the fact you know when it's politically expedient for them I didn't want to have sex with that guy I had sex with him because I thought it was the only way that I could get ahead or you could see women as intelligent actors the same way that that men are and to me I think that um, the last piece of the puzzle that people have difficulty talking about is something that's called hypergamy women tend to be attracted to and want to have sex with men who are high in status, regardless of whether those men can actually do anything for them in the near term. And this is why, you know, Donald Trump, who is definitely not a looker, has gotten a lot of sexual access with a lot of women. What? Is because he was also, very high in status. He's also on record saying how he will quite blatantly sexually abuse women. Well, I don't know if he was saying he would sexually abuse them, but I think he was saying that uh, that women don't object when he, he basically was bragging to somebody else. And what men brag about and what men do, I mean, not every every rap album is, not, is a true story, is it? Sure, sure. Right. So uh, this guy was, you know, I think Trump was doing something quite similar in that case. In any case, what he was saying is, I have such high status that... It, I can get sexual access much more quickly. But than, then than he it. also but has like 40, 50 women suing him for, and then he's settled with many, many of them. So he actually I, okay, act on Trump it. is a bad ex example, <laughs> but men who are high in status do get sexual access at a much higher clip than men who are low in status, right? And so it's very difficult right now to distinguish what happens if a woman who is consensually interested in somebody who's higher status than her right now we're just looking at that as problematic he's in a position of power he's exploiting his his place but this all assumes that women um have no sexual desire uh for men who are higher in status that they're just as happy to be with somebody low status as high status which has not been shown to be the case in 39 cultures and you know samples of of 10 and 20,000 people that these women um had no idea uh, that they were using their sexual access or sexual access in order to get anything in, in return. And, you know, in, in a lot of these cases, I think that as long as um, there's not some kind of uh, retribution where um, a man uh, cuts off a woman's uh, access to resources or her promotion because she says no to sex, I think people should be able to have consensual sex right now it's very difficult to tell the difference between people engaging with each other consensually 
with all the complications that I said, women being attracted to men high in status, women sometimes using sexual access as a way to get ahead um, from from other things. I'm not saying that men have not abused women. Men have definitely abused women. Women have definitely had to endure terrible things. There are women who are not at all interested in using their sexual appeal in order to get men's attention or get ahead in the workplace. That does happen. But I am saying that there are some women who do like to do that. And right now it's impossible to distinguish them. And I don't think that all women are virtuous actors such that they won't, when it's politically expedient for them, use sex one day to get ahead in a way that's totally consensual where both parties agreed. And then the next day use it to get that guy fired. I don't think that's the thing that never happens. Okay, so I was going to bring this to sexual harassment because there's a 2008 study in Australia by the Human Rights Commission um, and the, the, the number that has been put out, uh, which I spoke to Rosinov Summers and uh, Roxanne Gay in now an infamous uh, conversation where one in five women who have been sexually harassed came up and that was uh, presented from an American context not to be true. Uh, since then, I've looked into more about this, one in five seem to be uh, sexually harassed in an Australian context, yeah. Australia seem, Australia definitely has a problem with uh, sexual violence as well. The, you know, a, a uh, quite a sizable number of women uh, get either seriously injured or uh, result in death uh, due to sexual violence in Australia in a higher proportion compared to the rest of the world. So that's an actual problem. It's not based uh, on hyperbole, uh, rhetoric. It's an actual problem. Women in are more likely to die. At because the hands of a domestic partner. Yes. What did what was the, the I don't know if you were there when we were in Tasmania. What did they say? It was one woman a week. Yes, that's correct. That is a number. Okay. Fifty-two is the annual uh, death rate in Australia, on average, um, and it's like every every week we hear a piece of news. Yes. And that's that's norm. So when we talk about you know sort of this. Me Too movement and some of these things being brought to light. And when you take countries like, say, uh, India, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Pakistan, where sex, talking about sex itself is a taboo, and you hear horrible, horrible stories, um, you know, this power imbalance and these kind of things, they seem to exist. And I think Me Too in those contexts really have some power to change some societal norms. Yeah, I think it's terrible for you know a woman to be groped in the street when she's just minding her business and, and doing what she needs to do. And I also think that sexual harassment is, you know, it, it can be really terrible. It can be really terrible for people to make kind of unwanted, certainly touching and, and comments and things like that. My experience, and I don't know about this Australian study, but my experience has been- I will send it to you. You said it to me, um, is that I, I recently uh, reviewed a paper which was very critical of this uh, sexual harassment in STEM uh, study, uh, a report that came out, um, I want to say, a few months ago, maybe last year. And what this report did is that it said that there was this rampant sexual harassment in STEM, but what it did is it just asked women, has a man ever told you a sexual joke? Has he ever made a comment about your appearance? All these different things. And then... It actually took that number, which was a very high percentage, and didn't ask women, did you feel affronted or insulted or uncomfortable with this kind of attention? So I do think that you should really ask women about how they feel about it. 
I mean, if somebody tells me a dirty joke, I'm really happy. <laughs> like, I've got no problem with that. If somebody tells me that I look nice today, there's a big difference between saying your hair looks nice to saying, you know, nice nipples. Like, that's a very big, that's a very big kind of uh, difference. So I also think it's very strange the way society has been talking about things like 52 women being killed a year in Australia at the hands of a domestic partner and sexual harassment and Me Too kind of in the same breath as if patriarchy and male entitlement is at the core of all these things. I think that in terms of sexual harassment, women just differ so much in what they are comfortable talking about and hearing about. I do work with sex researchers. I talk about sex, even personal sex life stuff with them all the time. And to me, unless they say something like, if you have sex with me, I'll do X, Y, Z for you, you know, that kind of thing. I don't think that it's really risen to the level of sexual harassment because I'm not uncomfortable with it. Whereas uh, these women who are being abused by their partners, um, that's a whole completely different problem. Uh, they've actually found that most of the time these women report men for abuse. The women don't actually want their men to go to prison. They, they want them to come back. They often don't end up pressing charges. They go back to them repeatedly. I mean, but there's a lot of these, these, kinds, of, these kinds of issues where, uh, and then the men, the, the best intervention, and there's a, f- a whole Freakonomics about this, is actually to do uh, an education program with the men to tell them how it's not in their best interests to beat their female partners, which is something that offends people because they want retribution for these men. They actually don't want to rehabilitate them because they think what they've done is so uh, repugnant. So this happens in so many different domains that I can't get into, where people are more likely to want to do the emotionally satisfying punishment than they are to do an intervention that will actually be more likely to work. But I don't think that Me Too has, other than it being something about usually men's behavior towards women, has almost anything to do with something like domestic violence right well this is an area that i'd like to talk for another hour i just realized (laughs) we've gone over an hour mark and i'm conscious of your time and what we have next um i remember this is the bit that got very sticky during the last uh you know conversation between the two feminists that fundamentally disagreed with each other but um i don't want to wrap up on a note that is sort of contentious uh, I want to talk about... Um, Good luck. <laughs> now, this is something I know you... you we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, I'll try at least. Um, you're, you mentioned in an offline conversation uh, that you want to have fun. Uh, and that's sort of your life. Uh, it's a sharp turn from where we were. Uh, in the sense of... so The reason I, I'm bringing it up is I'm interested in what people do in their lives to find meaning yeah. right and I, I from my limited interaction with you it seems like being happy and having fun seem to be where you find meaning mm-hmm. and your polyamorous relationships and being just talking about anything and just having a laugh about it seem to be your way of living yeah am I right or can you tell me how do you find meaning in life I find meaning in life, yeah, I do. I think pleasure is just wonderful. <laughs> and uh, I'm just very temperamentally kind of super happy. And th- this is my temperament. Uh, but I also find meaning in p- potentially 
you know, decreasing the amount of suffering. I am a utilitarian, so it's important for me to try and decrease the amount of suffering and increase the amount of pleasure in the world. And that happens all kinds of different ways, right? I talk about veganism and vegetarianism. I encourage people to try to reduce the amount of suffering that they cause with their food choices. I also encourage people to do things that will make them happy and encourage people to adopt kind of healthy lifestyle choices. I don't do necessarily all of these things. And I have sometimes worked on problems that I thought were important for human suffering. I worked on menopause. I worked on hand washing actually in India for a while. So I have thought about these, you know, the way I find meaning is thinking that I might in some small way actually improve the lot of sentient beings more generally and, and humans specifically in the world. But in terms of my personal life, yes, having fun, enjoying myself, having a laugh, uh, enjoying pleasure and giving happiness to other people however I can not even just happiness and pleasure but the people that I associate with uh, including you know and, and I, I myself in this camp learning new things and satisfying your intellectual curiosity is just an incredible pleasure and that's one of the higher forms of pleasure that I also pursue and I look forward to helping other people pursue and you're yet to write a book I am yet to write the whole book. But well, you are working on something. I am working on something. And it is <laughs> going to... Because I watched some interviews from maybe 2018 where you talk about yeah. something. Where are you with the book? Where am I with the book? Uh, well, I have a 20,000 word book proposal, which is what I've heard too long for a book proposal. So That's not a book proposal. <laughs> That's a book. A book. <laughs> so right now it's gotten too long. But yeah, I'm working on a book called How to Train Your Boyfriend. And How to Train Your Boyfriend is, it's not going to be exactly what it seems by the title. Essentially, I think that women have an evolved psychology. I mean, both sexes have this, but women in particular have an evolved psychology to try and shape men's behavior in ways that would have benefited women in the long term. And I mean, in my view, this is a, a female superpower, remembering people's preferences, anticipating their behavior, shaping their behavior. And women do this also with their children. Women are amazing at this. And they teach their children how to behave in society with a kind of combination of rewards and punishments. But in my view, human behavior hasn't been inspected in this particular way. Nobody's actually taken this perspective of saying how does behaviorism intersect with evolutionary psychology? How are we all intuitive behaviorists? That is using rewards and punishments iteratively on the behavior of those people who are close to us. And how can we curb the worst in instincts in that respect? Things like shit testing, things like nagging, right? There are ways, you know, just one very small example I really like it if somebody anticipates what I what I like. It feels really good if somebody gets me a gift that I would have picked out myself because what it shows me is that the person has been thinking really deeply about me and getting to know me really well, especially if that's the thing that I don't really advertise that I like. So what I do is, especially after a night of drinking, I get on Amazon, I put things on my wish list, and then I forget I put them on there. And then I pretend when somebody gives me a gift from my wish list that they picked it out. So that's a way that I try and circumvent this pleasure that I think is in some sense, you know, it's not really fair to expect people to anticipate my preferences. And there's lots of other stuff like that that I'll be talking about as well. Well, look forward to it. Um, I There are a few areas that we didn't have time to cover. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. I'm pretty sure when I listen back, I'm like, oh, I should have said this, I should have asked this, because yeah, it's, it's, it has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>